I would like to extend my greetings to this wide UN and UN-based audience, and in many countries, uh, this is a third of the series of lectures I have given to uh, the United Nations, uh, the interesting new project, the Audiovisual Library of International Law. The first lecture was on peaceful coexistence and the uh, collision uh, between different civilizations and different systems. And uh, the interest was historical. What lessons would that have to offer for a world community beset by new divisions, uh, those posed by the challenge by fundamentalist Islamic thinking to traditional, classical, usually Western uh, theories and practice of international law. Uh, it was a historical resume. What lessons has the past got to offer? And we remember Santayana's principle, if you don't study history, you're compelled to make all the errors of the past. And uh, the only problem in that is whose history and who decides what history is relevant. Uh, I mention this because the subject of coexistence and the Cold War is very much in the news at the end of uh, 2009 for the very obvious reason. It's 20 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was an event of high symbolic significance to some countries more than to others, but of course it raised the issue, who ended the Cold War? who gets the credit, who won the victory, and there is a debate on that, and that's where different views of history become determinative of your judgment. Uh, the second lecture was on multiculturalism and international law. Uh, multiculturalism emerged first as a challenge to what was viewed in the 1950s and 1960s as an essentially Eurocentrist Western international law. That's to say both the body of principles and general rules, but also the institutions in the institutional processes. It took on a certain significance during the period of the Cold War, because in many respects the Cold War was a game between two rival political military blocks. The members of the bloc, the loyal supporters, the bloc leaders, but it left a lot of the world out. It wasn't to say they were neutral or unaffected because sometimes they bore the consequences of some of the ground rules of the Cold War. But nevertheless, there were countries outside the two blocs who said, we're persons too. We want to be part of the decision-making processes. So you had a cross-current all the time the Cold War was on the developing countries, the new countries, and even older countries that had never really been admitted to the Cold War alliances. We speak in particular of Latin America, which to a large extent was outside the uh, collision areas of the Cold War. But what developed was as new countries emerged and entered the United Nations, and as older countries outside the, the bipolar world power base uh, emerged into full confidence in themselves, you had special arguments being made for a recognition 
in United Nations institutions and in United Nations processes that there are more participants than just a few. There are certainly more participants by the 19, end of the 1950s and the 1960s than the original 44-45 countries that were present at San Francisco in 1945 uh, drafting the UN Charter. So these matters uh, c came together and uh, it led to, to a process of re-examination. One of the interesting things is the graduates of the Cold War included very many young people, supporters, students, colleagues of some of the leading jurists of the time and it's interesting now to have their reminiscences and one of the interesting volumes published in the last uh, published in 2009 is a symposium volume uh, multiculturalism and international law co-edited by a Chinese young Chinese jurist Sin Ho Yi and uh, my Canadian colleague Jacques Yvon Morin you have 38 different jurists from different systems represented in them. Uh, six, seven were judges or former judges of the World Court, but very distinguished people from different systems. And one of the interesting things is to have people who were there during the Cold War, but were not the principal players, uh, I think particularly of several of the great Russian jurists, Gregory Tonkin's students, uh, uh, Veris Chetin and also Ryan Mullison. They were young protégés, students and others. Of, and they had their thoughts on coexistence, which they supported, they endorsed, and they felt it was a great success. But they start to reminisce and say, well, here were limitations that we perhaps didn't examine at the time and should examine more fully. Um, and in the same way, in the acceptance of the multicultural premise, you have to argue, well, how far does multiculturalism go? Does it mean a mathematical proportion in representation in all main UN and other international institutions or something less? If you accept this degree of literal proportionality, you would say, well, if you examine the new world power bases, look at population. If countries have more than a billion people, should they have more representation than countries that, say, have 50 million or 80 million? Uh, and, of course, the answer from the piece of people in those countries is not in the least. Uh, we don't accept that. We want a representation of ideas and culture, but we're not demanding uh, mathematical approximation. We're getting into areas, of course, which bring to light uh, one of the truths of public international law. Public international law is public law. The element of policy is paramount. Uh, rules are there, principles are there, but they operate in a climate of action. Uh, decisions are made with determinate consequences and uh, you are dealing therefore in an area where the boundaries between law and politics are not always understood and in which, in the political side at least, the casual element of personality. Who is the leader? Does it make a difference that you have this particular president rather than his predecessor, 
or alternative candidate who might have won elections or a different prime minister does this make a difference so this is going to be part of our examination then the step beyond coexistence and the step beyond uh, multiculturalism as such and what is increasingly being viewed as a new pluralism that doesn't have the rigidities and the exclusiveness of either of those two systems. Now when we speak of uh, the Cold War, what is the relations of Cold War to international law? Well, the Cold War is a situation of fact, was a situation of fact and we're back then to the starting point of legal systems. Hans Kelsen, the great Austrian jurist, are possibly the best of the pre, immediate pre-1914, post-1918 uh, jurists. Hans Kelsen developed this concept of the Grundnorm, the authoritative starting point of any legal system. He was originally writing for domestic law, municipal law, not international law, but he said, you know, there, there is an authoritative starting point, a basic premise of any legal system, and all the other norms in the legal system derive from that. There's a dynamic process of unfolding of the norms, but the starting point is not a legal situation, it's a pre-legal situation, it's a meta-legal situation, it's an issue of political fact. And this is where I think you tend to think in looking back at the situation since World War II, a series of successive stages in the progressive development of international law where different basic premises, sometimes conflicting ones, are in operation. When World War II ended, the solutions for world government, such as it was, were made before even the war was ended. The large lines, in a certain sense, were discussed at the big power conferences on the ultimately Victorian side, at, uh, Casablanca, Yalta certainly, in a terminative way, uh, Potsdam. But um, beyond that, the founding conference of the United Nations at San Francisco 1945, spring of 1945, was attended by members of the alliance, not by members of the soon-to-be-defeated countries. One, they wouldn't have been allowed to go to San Francisco, but two, they were not invited. So you have a special community in operation which is largely determined by the continuing wartime alliance against fascism, as it was called, the alliance that won the war. And the United Nations organization as set up in 1945 reflects that particular basic premise in measure reflects that particular condition if you look at the settlement the division of the uh, parliamentary side if you wish of the united nations the security council and the general assembly the only members of the general assembly are going to be members of the alliance uh, 45 countries, if we include the case of Poland, which was decided a little bit later, 44, 45 countries. But the Security Council, a sort of uh, governing body, governing executive council, is limited to the big powers of that period. It, uh, the Soviet Union, the United States, China, 
which at that stage uh, the civil war was on, but it has not gone beyond a certain stage, and uh, Great Britain and France. And that's the premise on which the United Nations Security Council was founded. The Big Five, the Special Powers, their permanent members, and the veto power. But it doesn't last very long in that aspect. By 1946, certainly by 1947, the wartime alliance is sundered. The Cold War, as it's called, is emerging. So you get a new premise, which certainly corresponds to the reality of international relations in that period after 1947, the division of the world into two large political military blocs. Ultimately, well, at the beginning, United States with nuclear power, the Soviet Union very soon with nuclear power, and a nuclear standoff between the two blocs. Uh, a different premise altogether, and different ground rules, and different, uh, different uh, if you wish, different practices emerge. You get a certain gap then between United Nations law and uh, what we might call the Cold War ground rules, the rules of the game. Does that strike one as unusual? It's a phenomenon that occurs very often in municipal, national, constitutional law. You get the institutions as they're written in a constitution, but you also get cumulative practices outside, which often are the key to uh, actual policy-making, decision-making. I think in the case of uh, my own country, Canada, a large constitution, the second longest, I believe, in the world, but of the 150-plus sections, perhaps only eight or ten are seriously studied, and indeed it's been often a joke with royal commissions examining constitutional reform to ask witnesses, um, what do you think of section 141 of the constitution? And of course that, uh, that, that defeats all witnesses. Nobody knows what section 141 is. It isn't there. So there's a certain gap between the law in books and the law in action as the legal realists will call it. The law and books say such and such a rule, the law and action is what occurs. When you examine, therefore, the period when the Cold War was dominant, the Cold War starts, as we've said, about 1946-47. It ends symbolically in 1989, but the reality of international law making international application has to be found in what occurs in terms of the interblock relations, what ground rules are applied, what mutual reciprocal restraints are applied, and uh, what is tolerated, or at least not interfered with, in relation to countries outside the two blocks. The interesting thing with coexistence was that it was something that developed spontaneously, you might say almost by uh, public interest group uh, participation. The Cold War had been on for quite a period, 10 years, and you found nuclear scientists in both the Soviet Union and the United States were concerned with some of the interesting suggestions that were being made with the new nuclear power, what do you do with nuclear waste? 
the byproducts. And one of the suggestions was, well, uh, Antarctica is uninhabited, uh, we can put them in Antarctica. This is an idea that occurred very readily to political leaders, perhaps, but uh, it was based on an absence of scientific information. Antarctica is not solid permafrost. It's not something that's stable. As we are now discovering, the Arctic, Antarctic ice is melting too. Uh, there was a meeting of the International Geophysical Year, um, through the meeting, first meeting of Western and uh, Soviet bloc scientists, and these people discovered that they had very much in common. And one of the conclusions was we are worried about nuclear waste material, we're worried about what happens to pristine um, Antarctica. We think it's a very foolish idea. It was interesting to find that on either side of the Iron Curtain, um, the scientists agreed. And what they did agree on then was we'll speak to our leaders, we'll try and make communication. And they did. And within two years you have the Antarctic Treaty, which essentially disposes of this nonsense that you can use Antarctica as a dumping ground for nuclear waste or as a, a free uh, range for nuclear test explosions. We have to cooperate, we have to work together. And if you make this particular position clear, uh, we have gotten together on these matters, uh, why not go a little beyond that? We started with keeping Antarctica nuclear free, uh, a step beyond that, keeping the planets, the moon and planets free, uh, keeping away from nuclear weapons, but the key issue, uh, radiation. It was discovered uh, that uh, when the Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist regime exploded its first nuclear test device, that nuclear fallout would be carried by a geostrophic cu currents to the east, from the west to the east, from China and the west and over North America, moving eastward. It would fall down uh, and cows in British Columbia would uh, ingest nucleoactive, uh, radioactive uh, grass. From nuclear-free Antarctica to a ban on nuclear test explosions because of the deleterious effects on children and others, the radioactive fallout. It's a matter of concern for scientists, but it's also a matter of concern for ordinary people. And so the next pressure came from public interest groups. Why can't we get action on nuclear banning nuclear test explosions, or at least regulating them? And uh, this was taken up, and uh, the pressures arose both in Washington and in Moscow for getting some action to occur. And the genesis, of course, of the first big nuclear test treaty, the Moscow nu Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of uh, August 1963, is there. Uh, the Kennedy, Khrushchev, and uh, the British as a third party treaty. But it is essentially something that starts with public pressures. It's accompanied at the same time, though, by <coughs> pressure from the Soviet side, interesting pressure, calling for what was said to be Lenin's principle of the peaceful coexistence of different ideological political systems.
Well, one, of course, it wasn't a Leninist principle. Uh, probably one should give credit to the Chinese and the Indians. They signed this famous Pudge-Sheila agreement uh, between them, uh, undertaking not to settle any of their um, territorial disputes, which are still there, by the way, some of them, but marginal in, a, in terms of larger issues, not to settle them by recourse to military means, by military force. But the pro proposal came from the Russians, we should accept the principle of peaceful coexistence. I can remember when this was first raised, it created some uh, consternation. Uh, what are they talking about? Uh, is it an attempt to replace classical international law? Is it an attempt by the back door to develop an alternative international law system, the international law of peaceful coexistence? No, no, said the Russians, no, this is compatible with international law. And by the way, it's interesting to note that Judge Verestyatin, one of the young assistants to the great Russian jurist professional, Professor Tunkin at the time, has repeated this in uh, his uh, contribution to this symposium volume on multiculturalism that I just mentioned. Uh, peaceful coexistence was never incompatible with general international law. It was never viewed as in conflict with it. There's no conflict there. But in any case, the campaign is launched and the Russians send their best people there uh, to the, this campaign. They raised it unsuccessfully in the United Nations General Assembly. Let us codify the law uh, of peaceful coexistence. The General Assembly, uh, which at that stage is still a very small body, by the 1950s, still a very small body, said this is dangerous, it's rather political, and international law shouldn't be political, but at least the matter was shelved. Then it was raised with the International Law Commission, which in those days, late 50s, was a very small body, 15 people. It was a collection of scholars, more than it is today, the representatives much more of foreign ministries and the technical legal divisions. But the ILC, against incidentally the protests of one of the later most interesting English international lawyers, Sir Ian Sinclair, and he, uh, he felt the decision was wrong, but uh, the, the ILC decided again it's too political. The body, the, the oldest academy, the private academy, the Institut de Droit International, looked at the matter and said, it's political, it's dangerous. Well, of course, it's political, but all public law is political in a certain measure. The political and the legal, the distinction between them is hard to make at all times. It was left to a body called the International Law Association, a private lawyers, practicing lawyers based group based in London, but um, attended now by Russian and Eastern European delegates and they argued we should codify peaceful coexistence and the International Law Association under pressure from its continental Europeans said yes we will do it and that's where you get the campaign for peaceful coexistence. It is an interesting period because it brings together the best of the Eastern European jurists. These are people who are not in the direct political realms of government 
but they're interesting people, later go on to very distinguished careers in uh, Judge Lux, for example, the pre later president of the International Court, graduates through this process into, you might say, the higher hierarchies of, uh, of international law. But it is taken up and becomes a very popular issue. It's at this stage Khrushchev has succeeded Stalin. Khrushchev opened the doors to American tourists and uh, to a less extent Russian tourists going abroad. The, the walls in terms of communication between the two societies are opened up and uh, the issue takes on its own momentum. There is a much greater stability in interblock relations. Some say, well, in a pathological sense, it's the fear of mutual assured destruction with nuclear weapons that produces sanity. But it is also true that there is a softening of human relations, where the General Assembly would still have those terrible uh, rhetorically loaded speeches denouncing one side or the other, you're finding in the actual negotiation, once that is disposed of, you are getting a more reasoned, problem-oriented approach. And so the solution of the peaceful coexistence dilemma is to do two things. Uh, one is, if the Russians want a code, and don't forget, they're civil law people. So in a Cartesian sense, you start with the general principles, the abstract general principles, and you reason deductively from them in concrete situations. Um, but the Western preference for problem orientation, which coincides with this pressure on both sides of the Iron Curtains by interest groups, scientists, others, to have action and problem solving, they merge together, and that's the solution. There's a program of problem-oriented decision-making solution of common problems with common accepted solutions on both sides of the Cold War, accompanied by the abstract code. The abstract code has changed, a euphemism Western countries preferred. Mm -hmm. Instead of peaceful coexistence, it's friendly relations and cooperation among states. But in the reality, it's peaceful coexistence. But you get a whole, a whole mass continuing process of treaty making. The nuclear test ban treaty, the Moscow treaty, is followed five years later by the non-proliferation treaty. You get a treaty outlawing the orbiting of nuclear weapons in space. You get the denuclearization of the moon and the planets and uh, outer space generally. You get a whole series of disarmament measures, problem orientation, what you're getting then is a process by which the Cold War eases into detente through coexistence. And one of the interesting things, if you examine the heroes, who is responsible for it? Certainly I, one of those who contributed to this is Premier Khrushchev. He didn't last very long beyond the Moscow Test Ban Treaty, but uh, he's there, President Kennedy. But of course, one of the stars at a later stage, the man who got SALT one through the ABM Treaty and related agreements is President Nixon, 
Whatever views of Professor, President Nixon as a president within his own country, there isn't any doubt that the easing of the Cold War owes significantly to uh, Nixon's efforts and the Russian efforts on the same side. So coexistence, um, or the Cold War if you want to put it, the Cold War is not a monolithic body of principles and rules that emerged by the late 1940s and lasted 40 years till 1989. It is a process of accommodation, mutual accommodation between two blocks, two rival blocks that had nuclear weapons that could have, if there had been madmen in control, have launched nuclear wars against each other, but it doesn't occur that way. So in 1989 we say symbolically it ends with the fall of the Berlin Wall, but it's been ending for quite a long period. The issue then was what lessons can you learn from it? The first thing is dialogue. You must talk to the other side. The most foolish of all things is to break off diplomatic relations and close your embassies. I think one of the big mistakes in much Western foreign policy after 1917 was to break off diplomatic relations with Russia. They were away, for example, in the crucial period in 1922-23 when Lenin was dying and the struggle for succession was on. Foreign embassies are very influential in handling, assisting, you might say, issues of this sort and development. You must have a dialogue. Two, you must de-ideologize your negotiations as much as possible. Don't read abstract uh, doctrinal attacks on the other side. Get down to the problems. This you must do. And certainly you must proceed once you've started on a basis of accommodation that you're not going to get absolute results for what you want. You have to work something that works for both sides. So I think those are the general lessons. The obvious weaknesses of coexistence were, however, that um, it was posited on the two-block system, which was also was posited on those wartime agreements, Yalta above all, Potsdam, uh, the adjustment of territorial frontiers on a political military basis in 1945, but even more important, the spheres of influence. And this is where the conflict with the developing countries, third world countries, and others first emerged. It is not enough that we are not participating uh, it's not enough uh, that we're not permitted to participate in uh, decision-making. It's simply that we're being ignored. We want the power. And uh, this is where the first moves to multiculturalism took over. And you can see, see the process in operation. The key decision for the United Nations was in 1955. There had been, in spite of two excellent decisions by World Court judges, uh, opinions, I'm sorry, not decisions, by World Court judges on the admission of states to the United Nations, an attempt by the brilliant Chilean uh, jurist Alvarez to open up the processes of admission that the, uh, you can make a decision that you won't... Uh, 
that you will not, as Security Council, move on uh, an admission of a proposed new state. But once you've made that decision, there's no reason why the General Assembly shouldn't fill the gap and go ahead. They call this the Droit International Nouveau, the new international law. But until 1955, when somebody, a Canadian foreign minister at the time, Paul Barton, had the good sense to say, well, look, the Russians are vetoing and the Security Council Western candidates and uh, we are vetoing Russian candidates, uh, why don't we do a deal? Uh, the Bandung Conference, uh, Afro-Asian states had uh, earlier in 1955 passed a resolution saying Japan should be admitted to the United Nations and several other states too. Asia-Africa said Japan must be in. It's a breakthrough. Japan was one of the enemy states. If you look at the United Nations Charter, it's still there. Articles 53 and 107. Germany, Japan, the defeated countries, the hostile states. Well, they proposed this. Mr. Martin picked the ball up and said, uh, why don't we have eight of one side, eight of the other, and that's what's done. The United Nations General Assembly jumps from uh, it had reached, I think, 55, uh, no, 60 by 19, uh, uh, 1955. You add 60 new states, it's 76. It's a totally new assembly. There is a difficulty of finding a majority. There's no longer a pro-Western majority as such. It's much more a, a body where you have to build a consensus and you have to build a majority and you have to compromise. So the, uh, the um, United Nations changes forever and this is where you get these great lawmaking uh, declarations of the General Assembly which I think are subjects also of uh, documentary studies by the UN Audiovisual Library the uh, declaration on decolonization the granting of independence to the former colonial countries the 1960 um, declaration the 1965 one on control of natural resources and uh, the 1962 one on non-intervention this you get. But you also get more significantly, and we'll touch this uh, on this again in another context, you do get the decisions, the institutions must be more responsive to the larger world community. We're no longer 45 states as we were in 1945 or 55 as we were in 1955. There are lots of countries that have not been present at the creation. I noticed Judge Coromer, um, an interesting essay in the same symposium I was referring to in multiculturalism, said, look, when the UN Charter was set up, only four African states were there. Uh, many of them weren't in existence, they were parts of colonies, they weren't present, they said we weren't there. Um, the, this is shown dramatically in the power of the vote. There was a very controversial series of decisions by the World Court. In 1962, a complaint by two African states against the attempt by the white minority-ruled Republic of South Africa to introduce the regime of apartheid, racial separation 
into Southwest Africa. Originally a League of Nations mandate, it had been a German colony, uh, handed over control as a trust territory, as a uh, mandate uh, territory under the League of Nations to South Africa, which was then a British, uh, British colony, a British Commonwealth uh, a colony. Um, in 1962, um, uh, it was a, a separatist uh, a government, the apartheid regime was introduced by an Afrikaner nationalist government in South Africa to apply to Southwest Africa. Challenged in the courts, the courts in 1962, the International Court said, we're told that this is political, and we shouldn't decide it but we have certainly we believe this is the area where Lord politics do meld and we're going to hear it and that was decided by 8 to 7 you get a clear division of philosophies in the court and then in 1966 there were slight changes in the personnel of the court uh, between 1962 and 1966 in 1966 the court by a vote of 8 to 7 and on the second tie-breaking vote of the president, because the court was divided 7-7 seven, seven in numbers, decided, although it did have jurisdiction to hear the case, it didn't have jurisdiction to decide the case. So uh, this, the Don decision meant uh, the regime of apartheid can be introduced in Southwest Africa. The Canadian Prime Minister of the time, Lester Pearson, who wasn't a lawyer, by the way, said this strikes me as a decision that would have baffled the ingenuity of the medieval schoolman. He was thinking of Duns Scotus and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. They allegedly spent uh, one weekend debating the very important philosophical issue, how many theological issues, theological philosophical issue, how many angels could sit on the point of a needle. An interesting issue, but very frustrating. And to the United Nations General Assembly, approaching three months later the election of judges to the World Court, the triennial refresh refreshing of the court by a fifth of its members, five judges be elected, uh, the issue was very clear. We want judges who are more open to non-technical issues. So there you get the first example of the new numbers game and the feeling that international law has to reflect the larger world opinion. Is there a dichotomy between classical international law, which uh, in its large corpus, is, of course, is post-Treaty of Westphalia, uh, developed by Western European jurists for the most part, and then in the late 19th century by Latin American and uh, North American jurists too, but essentially is European in creation. There's a dichotomy between that and new international law, um, and uh, where does it come from? Part of the inspiration, it's curious to say, for this notion of a new international law does come from the United States, except it's being put forward by non-Western jurists. The American schools, the law schools of the post-war period, they have lived through President Roosevelt's battles to get the New Deal legitimated, accepted constitutionally, and uh, the Roosevelt jurists, 
Felix Frankfurt, a great Harvard professor, one of them, but the liberal judges, as they were called, the liberal judges appointed by President Roosevelt to the court and confirmed by the U.S. Senate, have accepted a notion of judicial lawmaking, judicial policy making. The judicial function is more than simply restating old rules or parsing them in a grammatical sense. It's trying to discover a spirit of the laws and a spirit of the laws that will take account of changing community attitudes and expectations. Uh, and this is really the dynamic principle that's introduced into the World Court and it is introduced in measure by the elections of 1966. There were some were well qualified candidates who had no part, new, 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 new candidates, no part in the decisions in 1966, but are viewed as representing the older classical grammatical approach to law, the non-interventionist, non-policy making move, and they're defeated and the message becomes very clear. Within five years, under the impact of new members, the court changes its mind. Uh, it's a result of a collaboration in a certain sense between the General Assembly and the courts and great pressure from academic lawyers in many parts of the world uh, that uh, you cannot accept uh, apartheid as being compatible with larger international war. So in an advisory opinion which is initiated through the political legislative arms of the United Nations, the court gets a chance to rule and by overwhelming majority it says the, uh, the apartheid regime is incompatible with international law, it cannot continue to exist, we declare the mandate, the trust is at an end. And, uh, so it opens the way to the use of political power to affect changes and uh, through the judicial arm but also in other arenas and this is the big cross current that developed historical cross current to the Cold War. The countries outside the two blocks want to be heard and have a new confidence and ability to express themselves. So the Cold War in a very real sense it may end symbolically in in 1989. It has been ending uh, gradually though, ameliorated. In Germany, for example, in 1969-1970, a new German government said we were divided in 1945, the two zones of occupation, there have been watertight compartments, but we're going to open the frontiers. And the German government at the time, it was a grand coalition of conservatives and social democrats, entered into a series of treaties, the Ostpolitik, treaties normalizing relations with Czechoslovakia, with Poland, and ultimately with East Germany, legitimating East Germany, opening the doors. It is a policy that owes a great deal to Chancellor, he was later Chancellor, he was the Deputy Premier in the government that started this, Vidi Brandt, his Foreign Minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher. So uh, the seeds of dissolution of the Cold War ending are already there. 
the emergence of the new forces, the new majorities in the General Assembly are already there and at work. So when we find with the ending of the Cold War um, a mood for change is there, what happens? Well, the basic premise of the Cold War has gone. What's emerged in its place? One of the problems in this is, and it was one of the lessons of coexistence, you don't make victory claims. And that comes straight from uh, Abe Chase, who was President uh, Kennedy's legal advisor. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, whatever you think of the merits of the Cuban-US and uh, Cuban-Russian relationships, uh, the Bay of Pigs episode the previous year, but the Cuban Missile Crisis is a paradigm model of successful problem solving in a crisis situation. Avoid cries of victory, avoid making impossible demands, get an agreement. The agreement was the Russians would withdraw their nuclear, um, they, they would not emplace any nuclear missiles in uh, Cuba, they would dismantle whatever constructions were there, there would be a cessation of some uh, Western NATO military installations in uh, Turkey and elsewhere, but at the end you do not claim victory. And um, this, is, this is really, the, uh, I think, one of the important lessons to remember. When the Cold War ended, <coughs> there was a tendency, perhaps, in some parts of the West to claim victory. Mr. Uh, Professor Fukuyama, in a very, very prominent uh, monograph, said it's the end of history, the ultimate victory of our side, of our principles, our rules. Um, I think, in retrospect, uh, it gives too much credit to a process that was more gradualist in its origins than uh, is given credit today. There is no question, though, that the role of individuals, including, as we've said, uh, uh, Mr. Khrushchev, certainly President Nixon, but also undoubtedly President Reagan, a man of, not a lawyer, but a man of great common sense, after a, a brief, in his first term, some flirtation with a tough line. You remember the Star Wars project, the uh, strangely improbable uh, uh, scheme of missile defense, which some said was designed to entice the Russians into a spending war on impossible defense projects. But after that uh, situation, uh, the um, the the, the people were very important in making the making the peace and the ultimate I suppose I would have said the the real ending of the Cold War was the INF Treaty. President Reagan and President Gorbachev signed the agreement on the intermediate missile um, control, intermediate nuclear force control. Um, President Reagan was told by Mrs. Thatcher you can do business with this man, Gorbachev, talk to him. So that's one of the lessons of the coexistence. Um, amelioration of the Cold War, open the dialogue, talk, and you get the agreement. But with the end of the Cold War, 
President Gorbachev suddenly disappears from office and this is one of the one of the strange things the changing of the guard uh, Chancellor Kohl disappears from power in West Germany um, Mrs. Thatcher is overthrown by a palace revolt in her own party the complete changing of the guard a new group of leaders President Mitterrand the long-serving French president as we know is uh, ill with incurable cancer in the last years of his terms in office it's a period of drift and uncertainty and this is the period in which the doctrine of unilateralism emerges and uh, I suppose it raises one of these basic issues was the was it because of the equilibrium of forces the balance of power the Cold War nuclear balance of power that peace was maintained if you have a single superpower isn't there a temptation to go it alone and uh, I think one of the lasting episodes of this period of transition because I think we are speaking now of a post-Cold War era a post-Cold War premise a grunnorm for international law um, was it one of these situations in which there was a dangerous drift with uncertainty as to who could make the decisions and how the decision to go into Iraq was one of the most controversial obviously in national circles of the international law decisions made the use of force compatibility with article 2.4 and article 2.7 of the ch charter it's not not the place here to examine in complete detail the discussions there there was a considerable difference of opinions it was raised in the Institute of International uh, we set up a commission in 1999 to examine the issue which was set then in the context of the Balkans can you have a recourse to force outside the United Nations Charter and without a prior enabling dispensation from the UN Security Council or the 